Our Father, we live in a world that is uh, troubled. We live in a world that is anxious. We live uh, in a world where we uh, sometimes think twice about going out in public just because of how things have changed. Things have changed. And we think about uh, safety in ways never thought about it before. We're living, we're living in, in troubled times. But we thank you that our lives are in your hand. We thank you that you govern all things, both good and evil. We thank you that you have a special love for your people, for those who you have called and drawn to yourself through Christ. We thank you that your eye is upon us. We thank you for the fact that you sustain us, that you keep us going, that you continually provide and you continually save and deliver. In another context, Jesus told his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Then he said that he would return. He was going away to make a place for us and then he would return and gather us. Uh, it's true, our life, our times are in your hands. Our, our conception was in your hands, our birth was in your hands, and our moment of death is in your hands. It's appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. In the interim, you take care of us. And when that moment of death that you have appointed comes because of the gospel and because of the good news, which we desperately need to hear in troubled times, we will be ushered into the presence of Christ immediately and be there forever. It's an incredible concept. It's an incredible truth. But it's the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you that it makes all the difference in the world on how we live, on whether or not we have anxiety or peace, worry or calm. Fear or peace. Help us to live in light of what you have told us in these troubling times. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our study.
really using the key word of, uh, of anchor. The concept has been that we are, uh, as men, fathers and husbands, to anchor our families in Christ. That means we've got to be anchored on Christ. Tonight, we want to look at the subject of being anchored in the gospel. Anchored in the gospel. My first year in seminary, first semester in seminary, you know, sometimes you don't get the class you need and they got to adjust. I found myself my first year, my first semester, I found myself in a senior church history class. I remember walking in, sat down next to a guy named Stu Weber. We'd been friends for, gosh, a long time. Uh, that was one good thing that came out of that class, was meeting Stu and developing our friendship. The second thing that was kind of shocking to me is that, honestly, church history? Are you kidding me? I mean, what a boring topic. I mean, honestly, I thought, gosh, I can't believe I got to take this class. And that's because for a lot of us, any history that we were taught in, well, usually in high school, the guy teaching history is a football coach. And the only history he knows is uh, Newt Rockney, Bear Bryant, um, you know, stuff like that. History is fascinating. Church history, church history is fascinating. I love that class. I couldn't wait to get there. Uh, for that class and others, they'll give you a syllabus and they will give you um, just the, the guts of the class. Uh, they'll give you the, uh, the date of the midterm, they'll give you the date of the final, they'll give you the required reading, and then they'll give you collateral reading. I found myself about four nights a week in the library late in the stacks uh, doing the collateral reading on church history. It was so fascinating. Every major heresy that we deal with today showed up within the first three centuries of the church, and they dealt with it. Fascinating stuff. We're going to do a little history tonight. Because if you're going to be anchored in the gospel, you've got to know some history. Turn with me, if you would, uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Very familiar passage to us. Um, the Apostle Paul writes these words in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not good works to be saved. We're saved by grace in verse 8. This is after we are saved from our sin. These are the good works that God has planned for us to do in our lifetime after we now know Christ. You see, he's got a plan for us. 
We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And when you finish your work, you're out of here. And until you finish your work, you're immortal. You can't die until your work is done for Christ. Yesterday was a significant day. You say, yes, it was Halloween. But that's not what I have in mind. Yesterday was a significant day because it was the 500th anniversary of um, the day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door at that Wittenberg church. Timothy George uh, sums it up well in one paragraph. He writes these words, 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517, a 33-year-old German professor named Martin Luther called for a public discussion of the sale of indulgences. The sale of indulgences. We'll come back to that. And all hell broke loose. The tumult that ignited the Protestant Reformation began in a backwater university town of some 2,000 inhabitants. Little Wittenberg, Luther called it. Wittenberg may have seemed an outpost at the edge of civilization, but it did boast a university, one founded in 1502 by princely and imperial rather than papal authority, the Pope, that one of its professors would call for academic debate on the commercial trade and papal indulgences long recognized by critics as a major abuse in the church was not surprising and may have even been predictable. But Luther's act was a spark that ignited a conflagration. I didn't say that right. I'm going to say it again just to try to get it right. A conflagration. One confrontation led to another, and soon Europe was ablaze with edicts, bans, bulls, anathemas, and condemnations. The 95 Theses were translated, published, and soon were circulating from the Atlantic to the Baltic, from Lisbon, Lisbon to Lithuania. The story of Martin Luther is a fascinating story. Some of you know that Ari McToxas has just come out with a new biography on Luther. I was able to read it this past week. Uh, there's another one that's uh, really good called A Place to Stand by Gene Veith, Jr. Uh, it's excellent. Uh, there's one that was done by Roland Baitont, B-A-I-N-T-O-N, called Here I Stand. Came out about 1950. Uh, Luther was a man who had absolutely no idea when he put those 95 theses on that bulletin board, and that church door was sort of a bulletin board, he put it up there. He was thinking, let's have some debate about the sale of indulgences. That's all he was going to do. You know, uh, academics debate certain subjects. Let's just have a discussion. He had no idea. But what that did was it earthquaked the entire world. It earthquaked it. It, it was one of the significant moments in all of history. And he had no idea what he was getting into. Indulgences. 
Yeah, what was going on is, um, well, you've seen those great cathedrals in Europe. They didn't build those in 1965. Those have been around a while. And in order to build those great cathedrals, it took a lot of money. And the coffers were running dry for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and they had to raise some money. And there was a guy named Tetzel. And Tetzel would go around, and he was an unbelievable salesman. And he was quite a preacher. And he would preach sermons and just absolutely have people that heard him in knots because he would talk about the fact that their grandparents and their great-grandparents were uh, in eternity, and they were in purgatory. Now, that's really interesting because the Bible says nothing about purgatory. Jesus talked about heaven, and Jesus talked about hell. Jesus never mentioned purgatory. But purgatory was something that theologians in the Roman Catholic Church came up with, kind of a limbo place between heaven and hell. Not scriptural, but he would preach these powerful sermons about Friends, family, caught for hundreds, thousands of years in purgatory, in misery. But if you would give an offering, if you would purchase an indulgence, it would limit the time that they would spend. And people were just shelling it out. And then, and then they figured out, they came up with this layaway plan for lack of a better term, I don't think that's what they called it, but I remember as a little boy, my mom, I'd go over there and it was Christmas time and she'd do a layaway thing. You'd set something aside and then you'd pay something every week. They'd lay it away and then you paid it and you'd get it. Well, they started doing that with your own personal sin. You could start paying down your own sin before you ever died and went to purgatory. And that's how they built the cathedrals. Oh, the other thing they had going on is that the Muslims were trying to take over Europe, and they had to finance their army to fight them off. But they had to raise some coin. Luther was incensed by this. So he wrote these 95 theses because he said, you know what, we got to reform. He wasn't looking to take down the Roman Catholic Church. He was looking to reform it and take it back to biblical roots because they had gotten away from the Scriptures. In essence, what had happened, and see, this is where church history is so fascinating. We're going to look at uh, a little bit of church history tonight. There was a period of time in church history where what they did was they, um, well, we just read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Do you have your Bible there? Close your Bible and keep it closed for a thousand years. That's what happened in church history. They just closed down the Bible. Now, I need to say something here. I got an email recently, and whoever wrote the email has been listening to these Bible studies online, apparently, and for some reason didn't think I'd see the email and just kind of wrote a general email hoping someone would read it and pass it on to me. And, and, the, and the statement was something like this. Steve obviously doesn't like Roman Catholic people. Uh, well, that's not quite right. 
What I don't like is Roman Catholic doctrine because it's false and because it's counterfeit and because you can't go to heaven if you believe Roman Catholic doctrine. And you say, that's a pretty strong statement. Yeah. Just so I don't forget it, I'll just go ahead and dive in on this point. We're going to talk about tonight uh, the Reformation and some other things. Uh, there was a council of Roman Catholic theologians after the Reformation. It was called the Council of Trent. And basically, they were responding. They were trying to do a counter-reformation to what happened when Luther unleashed the Word of God again. Um, and what they came after, their, their gospel is that we are justified by works and not by grace. The Council of Trent made that very clear, and that is still in, in, in force in Roman Catholicism. You are justified by your works. That's the Roman Catholic teaching on how you can be saved, which is contrary to the Scriptures. But see, when the Bible is shut up for a thousand years and closed, how would you know any different? It's all, I, I pastored um, in the Bay Area for how many years? Close to 10 years. Uh, and I know in my first church, about 40% of the people in the church had been raised Roman Catholic. You want to see something interesting. Someone who's been raised Roman Catholic, you hand them a Bible, and they start reading it, and things get real interesting real quick. Because they say, I never saw this. I was never told this. I was never taught this. I had a guy at the noon study afterwards hang around, and uh, that was his testimony. But he met a gal in college who knew the Lord. She invited him to church. He went. He heard the gospel, met a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s who loved the Lord, started going to a Bible study. He still got his original Bible. He just keeps getting it rebound because he's got all his notes. But he said, I never read a Bible until I was in my early 20s. Uh, that's perhaps your testimony as well. Tonight, I want to break this down, three main points. Uh, the first main point is this. We want to look at the gospel in the early church. The gospel in the early church. The dates of this would be A.D. 33 to 500, approximately. Secondly, we want to look at the gospel in the medieval church. That's um, A.D. 500 to about 1500. And then thirdly, and we'll get to this point, we'll get to number three about 11 o'clock tonight. The th that was a little humor for those of you hoping to watch the seventh game of the World Series. And I'm one of them, so don't get too worried. The third point is the gospel in the Reformation, and the dates would be approximately 1500 to 1650. 
although Luther didn't pound those 95 theses in until 1517. 500 years ago yesterday. So let's, uh, let's dive in. Let's talk about the gospel in the early church. Church history is fascinating. I got volumes and volumes, but one of the things I appreciate is if someone can summarize church history. And John Hanna, who many of you know, professor of historical theology at Dallas Seminary, has done this Kriegel Pictorial Guide to Church History, and uh, it's worth its weight in gold. I'm going to quote from John's work here. Uh, as we talk about the gospel in the early church, A.D. 33, that was the time of the, historically, the date that's set for the, uh, for the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, uh, all the way to 500. So what's going on in this period of time? Well, what's happening in this, in the gospel, in, in this early stage of church history is that the gospel is exploding. Um, in Acts 1, 8, it says, Jesus said, and you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And then in Acts 2, they're all gathered together and suddenly the Holy Spirit shows up and these people start speaking in tongues. Uh, they start speaking, uh, that tongues are known languages in fact, the term is they started speaking in uh, dialectos. They were speaking in known languages, and there were people gathered from all over the world. So the guys who were there from Birmingham, Alabama, would have heard someone praising God in that southern Alabama accent. It would be English, but it would be that southern Alabama dialect, if you've ever heard it. The guys from uh, the northeast up in Maine, they would hear someone praising God in their own dialectos, which is that Maine accent is a heck of a lot different than that Birmingham, Alabama accent. That's how exact it was. And what happened, the, the Spirit of God started moving and the gospel was being preached and thousands were being added. And it was just an incredible time. And they were watching the Lord, the, the, the Lord move and people are being converted and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And everybody was loving it. I mean, this is incredible. But they were supposed to take the gospel, and they were supposed to take it out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the animal supposed to parts of the earth. But they were having such a good time, they didn't want to do that. So then what did the Lord send? Ah, oh, he sent something called persecution. And the persecution, what happened is, it started driving them out. Guess where it drove them out to? where they were supposed to go in the first place. And that's pretty much the story of the early church for the first 300 years. There was persecution, there was great explosive growth, but there was great persecution. Um, you had something called Caesar worship in the Roman Empire, and certain uh, emperors were particularly cruel. Nero was cruel, Domitian was cruel, Peter and Paul were martyred. John was exiled. You know these stories. And this was the way it was. 
uh, it just kept going on this way. Tertullian, one of the early what we call church fathers, one of the leaders of the church after the apostles died, Tertullian said, the blood of the martyr has become the seed of the church. So, in and this is what always happens. Trying to uh, eliminate and destroy Christianity, they'll kill those who believe in the gospel, but what happens is wherever they martyr Christians, their blood is seed. That's what happens. That's how God works. So it stayed this way until an emperor by the name of Constantine got into power, and Constantine became a Christian. And when Constantine became a Christian, basically everything changed because up until then the empire was against Christianity. With Constantine becoming a Christian, now they were for Christianity, and pretty much he declared, all right, everybody's a Christian, which raised some other issues. And that, you know, it did raise issues. They were working out, um, they were working out doctrine and wrong doctrine. Remember, Paul told the Ephesian elders, when I leave, savage wolves will come among you and they'll teach false doctrine. Well, that, that happened. Um, so what happened when uh, Constantine became emperor and there were some of these disputes in the church? Well, he would call together councils. So they had uh, a council at Nicaea, which affirmed that the church teaching uh, about Jesus was that he was begotten and he was not created, um, but he was sent to us by the Father in incarnation, but eternally existing. There was a guy named Arius who disputed that. Arianism is still with us today in certain cults. All the uh, heresies showed up early. Uh, you had other church councils having to deal with issues about uh, the deity and humanity, how they were related in the incarnate Christ. Uh, you had them culminating in the council at uh, what we call the Chalcedonian Creed, affirm the unity of the divine and human natures of Christ the God-man. Uh, this was all being worked out. And the empire is rolling along. But you have the rise and fall of great nations. You have the rise and fall of empires. And the Roman Empire was going into decline. And just as it's declining, there was a man named Augustine, or Augustine, who had a mother who was a Christian and a father who was a pagan. And as a young man, he just wanted to have a good time. He was brilliant, he was smart, and he loved sex. I mean, that was his story. And he enjoyed himself to the hilt, and then the Lord got a hold of him, and he became one of um, uh, the great teacher in the church. And he went back and uh, searched the scriptures and um, really dug into Paul's epistles and captured the concept of grace. So, all we can say about that. Now, let's move to the next period which we call the medieval church. This would be um, 8,500 to about 1,500. So the uh, Roman Empire is going down. Hannah says, with the intrusion of pagan tribes such as the Goths, Franks, and the Vandals brought an end to the Roman Empire in the fifth century, Augustus Romulus was the last Roman emperor, 475 to 76. 
In the midst of this political collapse and cultural chaos, the church assumes increasing power in the Western Mediterranean. All right, now, what's significant about this is this is where, up until this time, the church was growing, the scriptures were being taught, they were fighting off heresy, there was persecution, but Christianity is spreading. It's spreading to India, it's spreading to North Africa, it's going up to Gaul, which was France, it's going into the British Isles, it's spreading. But now, beginning around 500, the church gets bureaucratic, and the church gets away from the Scripture, and the Scriptures begin to be closed. This was the thousand years that was bad news. This became, what happened, the church became a uh, bureaucratic, religious, pharisaical system like you had in the New Testament that Jesus attacked. Uh, Hannah writes this. Rome had been the western capital of the once mighty empire. From the crumbling moral and cultural debris of Roman civilization, the church at Rome emerged as a stabilizing force in the time of Gregory I. It even fulfilled the role of the state at times because the state was falling apart. Gregory, called the great with reason, was a force for good in organizing the church during a time of uncertainty. Though he eschewed the, the title of Pope, he was the first bishop in the church, watch this, to claim the superiority of the Roman church over all the other churches. He had all these churches all over. I mean, we know about them from Scripture. They name Ephesus and Philippi and the church at Galatia and Thessalonica, and, all, and there was a whole bunch of other ones. But the church at Rome, this guy Gregory, he said, we're, we're, we're going to be the big boy on the block. And he started working towards that end. Generally speaking, he followed Augustine, which was good, but he started building this bureaucracy, and that was not good. Fascinating book I got years ago, The Hundred Most Important Events in Christian History, written by Curtis Lang and Peterson. Uh, it is a fascinating book. Uh, they pick up this period there was, there was a pope, and, and you know, sometimes these names are just remarkable. This guy's name was Innocent III. He was anything but. This pope who ruled from 1198 to 1216, Innocent III, created the most powerful papacy in medieval history. So this Roman church is now emerging. It's, it's, it's consolidating power and bureaucracy and all kinds of bad things are going to happen. This hard-driving, gifted man sought to bring order and discipline to the church. He reformed and centralized the church's administration and became involved in the political affairs of the day. Innocent, I keep wanting to call him guilty, <laughs> but Innocent wanted the papacy to control both the affairs of church and state where previous popes had called themselves the vicar of Peter, Innocent claimed the right to be vicar of Christ, claiming to be Christ's representative on the earth. He said the pope was a mediator between God and man, between uh, below God but beyond man. That's really interesting because the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, period. 
where the Roman Catholic Church is today, Mary is co-mediatrix. Uh, when it was, was it Pope Paul? I, I have trouble keeping up with the popes. The guy who was shot in the Pope mobile? John Paul? Yeah. I remember reading the account, and one of the eyewitnesses that was there said he immediately, be, when he was shot, he began to cry out, Mother of God, Mother of God, Mother of God. You don't need to call Mother of God. You need to call Jesus. Because there's one mediator between God and man. Jesus. Period. And if you teach that anyone else is a mediator, that's a false gospel. Because there's no other name given to men under heaven by which they may be saved except by the name of Jesus. Mary cannot save you. Mary cannot give you access. The book of Hebrews says that by the blood of Christ we have access. You see. But when you close the scriptures and people can read the scriptures and people don't have access to the scriptures, how would they know that? So this guy, Innocent the third, um, he starts getting all this stuff rolling. In 1215, at the fourth Lateran Council, the church adopted many of Innocent's ideas. Uh, in three-day-long sessions, they set forth hundreds of decrees. Um, the church saw taking communion as a critical part of salvation, uh, being denied it as an excommunication was dangerous to the soul by having access to the very body and blood of Christ, and they believed that the communion wafer and the wine literally became the body and blood of Christ, literally. By having access to the very body and blood of Christ, the priest played a vital role in the church's authority. Excommunication had great power because it denied one, it denied one access to Christ himself. That's contrary to the gospel. I'll leave it at that, just sum up. Last paragraph, in these and other decrees, Innocent created an institution that, until the Reformation, would have a dominant influence in Europe. This is when the Bible was closed, church bureaucracy, and, and man-made doctrine was created. And it was a false gospel. It was a time of darkness. But God always has his light. God always has his truth tellers, and God always has his men. So let's jump to a guy by the name of John Wycliffe, 1380. Uh, he was, without uh, the doubt, the leading scholar of his time. Throughout England, people respected his wisdom. He may have been largely responsible for the early reputation of Oxford, where he studied and taught. His life, however, was marked by controversy. He had a dangerous habit of saying what he thought. When his studies led him to question official Catholic teachings, he said so. He questioned the church's right to temporal power and wealth. He questioned the sale of indulgences, still around, letters that were commonly believed to pardon sin, and church offices, the superstitious worship of saints and relics. They had all these relics. And in Luther's day, they had all these relics. I mean, they had the bones of Peter and Paul and Thomas, and they had the molars of, you know, uh, Bartholomew. And I mean, I mean, really, it was that ridiculous. There were so many pieces of the cross, you could have built an aircraft carrier out of it. 
and they were floating around. Oh, no, no, let me tell you. And if you would go and view certain relics in certain churches, you would get an indulgence that would get you out of purgatory quicker. This is man-made, godless religion. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel's in decline. But you, God's always got his men. So Wycliffe stands up, and he starts going after this. He even questioned the official view of the Eucharist, put forth by the Fourth Lateran Council. Uh, he regularly had to defend himself before bishops and councils. Um, Wycliffe was popular among the people. He had followers who were called the Lollards. They taught the scriptures to the common people. They would travel throughout England with the gospel. But um, opposition started to increase. Uh, his writings were burned. He was stripped of his position at Oxford and forbidden to decimate his views. And this gave him time to work on his Bible translation. Everyone, Wycliffe maintained, should be allowed to read the Scripture in his own language. For as much as the Bible contains Christ, that is all that is necessary for salvation. It is necessary for all men, not for priests alone, he wrote. So he worked with other scholars to translate the first complete English Bible. The first edition was published, then a second. Um, it was distributed. They made it illegal. Uh, he suffered a stroke and died December 31st, 1384. He was so hated by the religious bureaucracy, 31 years later, the Council of Constance excommunicated him, and in 1428, his bones were exhumed, burned, and the ashes scattered on the river Swift. Sucker was already dead. This is great. But no one knew how swiftly his ideas would scatter through Europe. The effect of his teachings on later leaders such as John Huss earned Wycliffe the name Morning Star of the Reformation. You say John Huss? Yeah, he was 1415. John Huss was burned at the stake for reading what Wycliffe taught, which he found in Scripture, and he began to preach. And Huss was burned at the stake um, one of the things that bothered him, he lived in Bohemia on the walls of Bethlehem Chapel. Paintings contrasted the behavior of the popes and Christ. While the pope rode a horse, Jesus walked barefoot. As Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, the pope had his feet kissed. Such clerical worldliness offended Huss, and he preached and taught against it while stressing personal piety and purity of life. By emphasizing the role of the Bible in church authority, he lifted biblical preaching to an important place within the church service. So what do they do? They burn him at the stake. Then in 1456, in the providence of God, there's a guy named Johannes Gutenberg. And he's kind of pittering around with this invention. And uh, suddenly you got a printing press, which was very, very timely. Because before long, this guy named Martin Luther was going to show up, and he was going to start writing and all of a sudden, his stuff was going to be printed. He never, took, he never got a royalty. He never knew they were printing it. And it was disseminated across all of Europe. And the Reformation took off like a forest fire. Funny how God uses technology. It can be used for good or evil. You guys still with me? Uh, this was a dark period. But... God's about to do something. And this takes us to our third main point, the gospel in the Reformation. 
and we run into Martin Luther. Uh, Gene Veith gives a chronology of Luther. I'll give it to you real quick. In 1483, Luther is born. He attends university in 1501 to 5. 1505, he's in a thunderstorm. It's so intense, he vows to God, if God will save his life in the thunderstorm, he'll become a monk, and he did. Uh, in November of 1510, he makes a journey to Rome. And what he saw at Rome sickened him. He saw the immorality of the priest who had taken vows of celibacy, but they would sleep with prostitutes who hung around the church. Now, by the way, why did priests have to take a vow of celibacy? Is that in the Bible? Actually, it's not. In fact, in the Bible, church leaders are expected to marry. It's the rare man who has the gift of celibacy. It's rare. It happens, but it's rare. Most men are to marry and to have children. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife as do all the rest of the apostles? So as the apostles traveled and went about their ministry, they had their wives with them, but Paul wasn't married. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, elders, leaders in the church. An elder is to be the husband of one, what? One wife. It was expected they would, they would be married. But when you get a pharisaical, hypocritical, bureaucratic, legalistic, man-made system, it twists the Scriptures. And no wonder there's so much sexual immorality within the Roman Catholic Church. It's, God never said it to be this way. But the immorality in Rome, it sickened him. The indulgences, the wealth, uh, it just, it made him sick to his stomach. It, it, it shocked him. It stunned him. Um, by the way, later Luther got married. One of the things that happened is that there is so much to tell on this. Where's that clock? Okay. If you read Metaxas' book, he does a great job of showing, and I've already mentioned it, that a lot of what came out of the Reformation, Luther, I mean, he was absolutely stunned. He was taking on the church for indulgences, and he wanted to reform the church. He didn't want to start a new church. He didn't want to start a Lutheran church. He didn't want to start thousands of other churches, which happened. He didn't want to do that. But what would happen is <laughs> it, it shocked him. You know what? John Flavel used to say, learn to adore the providence of God, how God works. I was talking with a young man recently in his 20s. Good guy, he's asking me a lot of questions because I'm a real old guy in his eyes. And actually in my own eyes, I'm a real old guy now. And he's asking me all kinds of questions. They were good questions. And he was talking about uh, plants. He's, they're, they're trying to, you know, he's, he's a planner. That's good. He's a good steward. They got a financial plan and all this, and now they're thinking about having babies, and that's great, that's good, and all this. And, He's, he's, he's asking me about all these plans. And, yeah, that's good. It's good to plan. I said, but here's the thing. When you make your plans, 
write them in pencil. Proverbs 16 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You talk to guys my age, it's amazing how many of them will tell you, yeah, in my 20s, I thought it was this, and I wound up this, and I thank God for it. Yeah, we, we'll get some things right, yeah. But God, God, God's full, just full of surprises. You never know what he's going to do. So don't write it in pen, write it in pencil, and stay flexible. This is what happened to Martin Luther. The other thing about Luther is this. Luther had a very, very sensitive conscience. And he, um, he'd made a vow to God, so he became, he went, he became a monk. And, but he was tormented because, you see, in order to have peace with God, you had to confess your sins to a priest. And he had so many sins... He was doing everything he could do to be forgiven, but he never had a sense of being forgiven. He would fast. He would pray. He would go into the confessional. He would wear these priests out. He'd be in there for hours. He would, he would actually get out of exhaustion, fall asleep, and then he would wake up, and then he would realize he had forgot something. And he was, when you read this guy's life, he was absolutely in torment because he could not find forgiveness of his sins and there is no one who was doing more good works than Luther in order to try to earn God's forgiveness. He had a he had a mentor because he was so gifted. And here's the thing about Luther. He was had a very sharp mind. He was very good in languages. He um I I mean he was razor sharp. And he just didn't take the pat answers. He wanted to know truth. And he was torturing himself because he could not find forgiveness with God. He had a mentor, a man named Stoppitz, who was an older man in the monastery who encouraged him to actually read the Bible. And because he knew Luther had been trained now, and he knew Greek, and he knew Hebrew, and everything pretty much was done in Latin, he started reading. And then Stoppitz was so concerned about him that he, was, that, that he said, what you need to do is you need to become a priest, and you need to be ordained. And Luther was scared to death to be a priest because priests would actually handle the actual body and blood of Christ, and he felt like he was such a sinner that God would kill him. And so this guy, stop it, said, listen, what we ought to do, yeah, let's get you into a Ph.D. program because it's very demanding and you would do well, and then we'll get you teaching theology. And then in five years, he got through the program, and then stop it, stepped out of his post and gave it to Luther just to keep the guy busy and assigned him the task of teaching the Bible to these other students. So Luther starts digging in to the actual Bible, although it was closed to everybody else, and a lot of priests had never read the Bible. You following me here? So he starts digging into Romans. He starts digging into Ephesians. He starts digging into Galatians. And something happened. He discovered the gospel. And it changed his entire life.
Give me a second here. I've made so many marks. Yeah. So he is preparing to teach these classes on Romans and Ephesians and Galatians. And then something happened to him. Luther was very honest because he said, in actuality, he hated God. Because as a monk, he had done everything he could do to live a life of virtue and to merit and earn salvation but he knew it was never enough. And this seemed so unfair of God. And then he came across Romans 1.17. And this is what, which is the full meaning of the gospel. And this is, these are Luther's own words I'm going to read to you. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the Scripture, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther described how that one verse, the righteous shall live by faith, made all Scripture come together for him. This would be the insight around which all his theology and all his leadership would be built, and the confidence it gave him, the assurance of his salvation, and his conviction that God was acting in his life and in the course of the world gave Luther the courage to overcome the enormous obstacles that he would soon face, which was he had the whole weight of the bureaucracy of the Roman Catholic Church come down on him and he knew it was going to cost him his life. But he didn't waver. Uh, what a fascinating story this guy has. And so the more he was learning, the more he was writing, and then some printer would get a hold of it. And the next thing he knew, it was everywhere. And what happened, people started reading his writings based on Scripture, and they never read the Scripture. They called him in, called him on the carpet. Um, this happened a couple of times. It looked like they were gonna, they were gonna charge him and kill him. Uh, they released him. His friends kidnapped him. Took him to Wartburg Castle for a number of months. While he was there, God used him and his linguistic skill. He had the ability, he could understand the languages technically. He had the ability to put them in the common tongue accurately. And many scholars call him the father of the German language. He translated the New Testament, I think in 11 weeks, into German, and then the printers got it and And then suddenly you had priests all over leaving the Catholic Church. And he, and he was, he said, what? I never said leave the church. Yeah, but if we just shall live by faith and if this is a false system, and they just start, they started reading the scripture and they, and that was it. And then priests started showing up married. And Luther was shocked. And then nuns started asking him to help them escape. And he helped a group of nuns escape. And one of those became his wife, Katie. 
Uh, it's a wild story. Stuff just took off like a forest fire, and the whole time his life was on the line. But the more that he saw God work, the more emboldened he was that God was carrying him. He expected to die a martyr's death. He never did. He died at 62. He just wore out. Others died martyr death, a martyr's death, but not Luther. James and Montgomery Boyce, great preacher, great scholar, pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for years. Uh, Donald Barnhouse used to be there. Philip Ryken followed Boyce. They got a great pulpit there. James Boyce, I'm going to sum this up. Is this a wild story or what? You see, because the gospel of Christianity ebbs and flows, it ebbs and flows. But uh, the gospel is the power of God. I, uh, I, I saw, I don't watch a lot of videos, but I saw one last week. Uh, maybe, I didn't even watch the whole thing, but it was an interview there's a writer named Ian Murray who does a lot of biographies. He was one of the founders of Banner Truth Publishing. Uh, and he was interviewed along with John MacArthur, and they were talking about books and their reading habits. That got my attention. And they started talking about the Reformation. And MacArthur made this statement at one point. He said, you know, the wild thing about the Reformation is there was a thousand years of a powerful religious man-made, earthly bureaucracy opposed to the gospel. And it was in place for a thousand years and shut the gospel away from the common man. And God defeated that by a handful of men, just a handful who started preaching the Bible. We've said it before, God works sovereignly, God works strangely, and God works slowly. You never know how God's going to work. Out of the Reformation, five solas, here's our summary, solas, S-O-L-A apostrophe S. Five solas came out of Luther and the Reformation. Oh, by the way, there were others. You see, Luther what Luther is doing in Germany, then the writings get out, and then there's um, others start reading it. Uh, Farrell starts reading it in, in Switzerland. Uh, Zwingli starts reading it. Then you've got, uh, and years later, this guy in France, uh, Calvin, starts reading it. A lot of Christian people don't like John Calvin. You know why you don't like John Calvin? Because he tells the truth about what the Bible says. I got Calvin's commentaries. Every time I look Calvin up on a text, he, he won't play with it. He won't excuse it. He won't try to get you around. He just says, this is what God says. Your problem's not with Calvin. Your problem's with God. He's reading one of, uh, he's reading one of Luther's commentaries, and, and, and he finds Christ. And then he winds up joining Farrell in Switzerland, and you got a Reformation coming out of Geneva, and all kinds of stuff is happening in Geneva under Calvin's ministry. And one of the things that's happening is that others around Europe who are being persecuted for believing 
what Luther has discovered in the Scriptures, and they're preaching it, they have to leave their countries under threat of death, and they're coming to Geneva, so Calvin starts teaching all of them so that they can be equipped and then go back to their nations. One of them was John Knox, and Knox goes back to Scotland, and he takes on these women, Mary Queen of Scots, who's killing Christians left and right, and he just stands up and preaches the gospel. The guy was fearless. He was fearless, and he would pray, oh, God, give me Scotland, and God gave him Scotland. Don't have time to go into that. But there was a movement of God in Scotland, and then a lot of those Scots came to the United States, one of them being John Witherspoon, and because of what Witherspoon heard when he started teaching at Princeton, I can't remember how many of the signers of the Declaration had been taught by Witherspoon, but one of them was James Madison, and the whole concept of religious liberty really flowed out of what Luther said when he stood up to defend himself under what he thought was going to be sure death at the Diet of Worms, the Council of Worms. He said this, they asked him to recant his writings. And he put his writings in three categories. I won't go into all that. But the ones concerning Scripture, here's what he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. There's the concept of religious liberty. We obey, the Bible is the ultimate authority. God has put other authorities in place. We obey those authorities until they tell us to disobey the Word of God. And then we disobey those authorities and we take the consequences. But his conscience was captive to the Word of God. That's where the whole concept of religious freedom came from. That's another story. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And he expected to die. And he didn't. But others did. Five solas came out of the Reformation, according to James Boyce. Here's number one. And this is our summary. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. When the Reformers used the word sola scripture, sola scriptura, they were expressing their concern for the Bible's authority, and what they meant is that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority, not the Pope, not the church, not the traditions. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is the authority. When he speaks from the chair, it's as though God is speaking. Actually, it isn't. It's the voice of a man and not a God. You see? And Luther took that on. The, the other authority in the Roman Catholic Church is tradition, what they've come up with. But you see, Luther just took it right on. Sola Scriptura means they were expressing their concern for the Bible's authority, and what they meant is that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority. Not the Pope, not the church, not the traditions of the church or church councils, still less personal intimations or, or subjective feelings, but Scripture only. Other sources of authority may have an important role to play. Some are even established by God, such as the authority of church elders, the authority of the state, the authority of parents over children, but Scripture alone is truly ultimate. 
Yeah, I mentioned last week uh, a large megachurch, the pastor's leaving, he's appointed a, a woman to be the lead pastor, and you're seeing this more and more. And what I'm hearing in evangelical churches, well, the, the elders gave me the authority to do this. The elders don't have the authority to violate the Word of God. This is happening in evangelical churches. They don't have the authority to violate 1 Timothy 2. And I will tell you this, it'll come up in this church one day. And if you go to another church, it'll come up in that church. And if you're a church elder, you better make sure that you stand on the Word of God. Second principle is Christ alone. The church of the Middle Ages spoke about Christ. A church that failed to do so could hardly claim to be Christian, Boyce says. But the medieval, the medieval church had added many human achievements to Christ's work so that it was no longer possible to say that salvation was entirely by Christ and His atonement. This was the most basic of all heresies, as the Reformers rightly perceived. It was the work of God plus our own righteousness. We're saved by the blood of Jesus, period, period. There was a guy that came to this study for years and years and years, died of a very difficult, terrible disease, withered, withered, withered him away to nothing, but he had a strong faith. He belonged to a church body that believed that salvation came if you believed and were baptized. And he asked me at his funeral service, I was honored, if I would give the gospel at that church. So I did. And I gave the gospel and I explained it. And then I said, if you've never asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior and forgive you of your sin and to come into your life and to take away your sin, you can say, Lord Jesus, I believe that God raised you from the dead. I believe you're God. I believe that you died in my place. Be my Savior. Be my God. Be my shepherd. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I said, that's the gospel. And then the minister said, and be baptized. And I just kept rolling. That's why Paul didn't ask him to share it. It's, it's Scripture alone, it's Christ alone. Number three, it's grace alone. The word sola gratia mean that human beings have no claim on God, that is, God owes us nothing except just punishment for our many and willful sins. Therefore, if he does save sinners, which he does in the case of some, but not all, it is only because it pleases him to do it. Indeed, apart from this grace, with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that flows from it, no one would be saved, since in our lost condition, human beings are not capable of winning, seeking out, or even cooperating with God's grace. By the way, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
That's quite a statement. You see, the fact is, it is all grace. It's not has nothing to do with us, because if you go up several verses, it'll, it'll say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before we came to Christ, we were dead. Dead men can't will to change their conditions. Dead men can't will to become alive. I'm sick and tired. I've been dead for three centuries. Dad, gummit, I just want to go get a beer and a pizza. They don't do that. Dead men, dead men are dead. Dead men don't seek God. So in Ephesians 2, even when we were dead, he made us alive. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. Faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God that no one should boast. Even the faith is a gift. That's all grace. Number four is faith alone. The the reformers never tired of saying that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But when we put it in the theological shorthand, the doctrine was expressed as justification by faith alone. The article by which the church stands or falls, according to Martin Luther. The reformers called justification by faith Christianity material principle because it involves the very matter of substance of what a person must understand and believe to be saved. Justification is a declaration of God based on the work of Christ. It flows from God, a grace, and it comes to the individual not by anything he or she might do, but by a faith alone that comes from him. Number five, glory to God alone. Each of the great solas is summed up by the fifth Reformation motto, Soli Deo Gloria, meaning to God alone be the glory. It's expressed in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. It's the gospel that was delivered to the saints. It's the gospel for us. And the enemy always wants to confound it and confuse it and add to it, and we stand against it, and we stand on the Word of God, for it's the power of God to save. Let's pray. So, Father, in our days, the gospel is under attack, and those who hold the gospel are under attack for saying that the gospel is true and Jesus is the only way to God. But give us courage as you gave the early believers courage. Some of them died for their faith. Some of them suffered all kinds of affliction and persecution for their faith. We thank you for the gospel that has saved us. Give us the courage to teach the word with boldness as you give opportunity. There are many who you have yet to bring into the kingdom that you have chosen. We are honored that you would use us. Luther was shocked that you used him. Um, We're shocked when you use us. We're not all great evangelists. We're not all great communicators like we've read about in history. But there's a fragrance of Christ that's in our lives because of your goodness and your grace.
And Paul said, unbelievers are aware of that fragrance. And to some, that fragrance of Christ leads them to belief. And to others, it turns them away to unbelief. You use us even when we don't realize we're being used. What a great God you are. Thank you for your goodness to us. We are humbled by what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.